0: They say the world could be hard, cruel, and ugly. Trust me, it gets worse if your hunger and thirst doesn't push you from position last place to first. Can't build a foundation without having feet in the dirt. So I put in the work, grind harder than most. I don't chase accolades of the living, I'm facing a ghost. That's what makes me the goat. Depending on who you ask, my brother, whatever task Got it covered like a mask, guaranteed They can't see me at the open run Cause I cook competitors until they look well done Don't act like you don't know where I held from I had to climb up out the trenches, sit on benches, throw my time and come Don't be mad at the player, be mad at the game Sneak dissing the hating, that's a flag on the play. Me falling off, huh, that'll be the day I'm like both in the race, leave the track, flan bay It's the run, okay. open run okay. happened to catch the Super Bowl this past weekend. Many said it was a pretty boring game right up until the end when Patrick Mahomes went Patrick Mahomes when it counted the most. He's a kid who has a sparkling resume after six seasons as a starter. Three MVPs of the Super Bowl, two league MVPs, three Super Bowl championships, four Super Bowl appearances in the past five years. He's 28. The GOAT. The good doctor, Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr., retired at 44. Seven Super Bowl wins, 10 appearances, unmatched, unprecedented, unequaled, for now. And the argument might go, because people are saying that Mahomes is the GOAT already, and those who will say, well, Brady didn't do it as fast as this, and it seems a lot like the argument about Bill Russell, we'll talk about the late great later on in the podcast. And his 11 rings versus St. Michael Jeffrey of Wilmington's six rings. A very condensed period when he won those. Much like Patrick Mahomes. So for those who are arguing that Mahomes is the GOAT. Mahomes himself even said, it's hard for me to make that comparison because he beat me in the Super Bowl. It's a loss Mahomes can never avenge. But I enjoyed the game. I enjoy seeing this young man black athlete, no matter what people say about her, enjoy this level of success in the NFL as a quarterback, clearly changing the perception about the position, how it's played, and who will be playing it in that fashion. That rigid and staid ideas about what this thing is should be forever more done. What will not be undone is my view on potted meats, I saw a spam commercial during the Super Bowl this weekend, and they played it over and over again. I found that odd. In the era of healthy choices and the oddity that is people calling eating healthily a diet, pay attention. There was this inundation of spam commercials. There's a reason why spam is bad on these rough interweb streets. Imagine what it is if you put it in your system. But they were promoting it. You could slice it, dice it, chop it. Make it fries, all this other stuff. I'm like, nah, dog. Not for me. Doesn't matter to me how much you hype it up. Try to promote it to me. I'm not gonna be able to do it. This past Super Bowl Sunday also reminded me of something that occurred 34 years ago to the day. I was on my radio show called the Base 917 Zone. Someone else who was down pretty bad that night was a guy who had lied and told himself that he didn't need to train to be ready for a 42-to-1 underdog by the name of James Buster Douglas. His name? The artist formerly known as Malik Abdul Aziz. You might know him better as Michael Gerard Tyson. Iron Mike, Messiah type. Got his ass knocked out in Tokyo, Japan on February 11th, 1990. I was on air. I thought people were plunking me. They told me this. I was hyped up. Not like the spam people tried to hype me up. But it's a bunch of lies. Mike Tyson lied to himself. I thought everybody was lying to me. I was amped. I want to fight that night. Until I realized that preparation is everything. And if you don't respect your craft, it will disrespect you in the harshest of ways. So when I started writing out the show this week, and I thought about Pasta news when he says, genuine adrenaline from off the wrist. Talking about what he writes and what he believes in. I started thinking about how much stuff I had to do. How busy this time of year is with the Super Bowl, and NBA All-Star Weekend, Grace, my students coming up. Just a lot. Got a lot on my plate, but it's hard for me to complain about how full my plate is when the goal was always to eat. So I keep it pushing, much like I do each and every week on the podcast where basketball and life are one. It is the Open Run with Will Strickland. That would be me. The Open Run with Will Strickland is brought to you by the fine folks at One Neighborhood. One Neighborhood. Coming to a neighborhood near you very, very soon. I can be found across these rough interweb streets at W underscore Strickland and the number one on Twitter. Will Strickland and the number one on IG and across all streaming platforms where podcasts can be found. It's Valentine's Day this week. You got it, sweetie? Male, female, or however you gender identify. It's whatever it is. What do you do? What makes a person your Valentine? Is it a temporary state that has to be instituted by virtue of a state mandated day? Valentine's Day or the history behind it or anything else? Do you buy cards, flowers, candy? I don't know. I'm learning a lot about empathy. I felt like I was a pretty empathetic person in a lot of ways. Maybe in other ways, not so strong there, but I'm learning a lot about empathy over the past couple of weeks asking myself what is it that I love, I ask my students what is it you love about this thing you say you love, which is the music industry. What is it you love about it when you know it's dirty and the pool is full of sharks? Maybe that's a microcosm for life. And Still within all of that, you gotta find some love. And Maybe that's the wrong way to look at it because you don't find love, it finds you. It is the most elusive of commodities. We start to question your love for your craft or start to question your love for anything. I think it's imperative that we stop long enough to look at ourselves and what we're doing or not doing. I talked about having so much on my plate, but the goal, maybe I lost sight of when I was complaining. I saw something this week from one Clay Alexander Thompson. He of four NBA championship rings, some of the greatest Marks in NBA history, 60 points on 11 dribbles is nuts. 37 points in a quarter is nuts. When you think about a guy who's been dubbed Game 6 Clay, yeah, you do things when it counts the most. And right now he's going through a rough patch at 34 after two major injuries to his legs, trying to figure it all out where he fits in the new wave. Is he in his final chapters as a player in the NBA? 100%. It doesn't go forever. And that's really hard to deal with. Game erosion and skill erosion and do I still got it? That kind of stuff. And he was interviewed after a game where he was benched in the fourth quarter. Hall of Fame player. Still good. Not necessarily in his prime, but still good. For younger players who, for what it's worth, have to be employed in games, not just on the roster, by the Warriors in order to keep them there. And when Clay was interviewed, he just, man, it hurts. It sucks sitting on the bench. Winning trumps everything. That doesn't stop the way you feel. And he was so open and transparent and self-aware that it hurt him. You don't see that a lot in athletes today. You don't see that a lot in people. We do almost anything to mask how we really feel. In that moment, I could empathize with Clay Thompson. I could feel his pain. Understanding that, and I never played at his level, but understand that just trying to play basketball on the weekends sometimes. What is it that you do love? I love his honesty. And I feel like as I go on this journey to being more empathetic, my honesty goes along with that. Things you want to say and reveal to people, and you don't know how they're going to take it. Clay didn't even think about it. He just said it. Maybe it was cathartic for him. And every week when I say these words into this microphone, maybe that's my catharsis. And I'm glad and appreciative that you stick around to listen to it. So please do come back for more on the other side of this, on the open run with Will Strickland, because I love you too. Back, give me more of what you asked for. It's the open run with Will Strickland talking about the NBA trade deadline with you, the listener, myself, because it is cathartic, but it's also my of information here on the podcast. So when you looked at these trades, everyone thought as every year goes by that there would be a big blockbuster trade. But sometimes subtle, like the G in Cologne or lasagna. That's me. I put the B in subtle. As a matter of fact, those moves tend to make seismic waves, whether it's this season or seasons following, because they're setting you up what was to come. And again, this thing is not an exact science person that chose to trade certain people and you didn't think they were a key part or key cog in a championship win, you find out later they were right for the chemistry of that squad. I always think about Rashid Abdul Wallace when that happens. The Pistons in 2004 looked like a bunch of mismatched parts and people that hadn't done anything anywhere else. Rip Hamilton coming from Washington after playing with St. Michael Jeffrey of Wilmington not winning anything there. See Ben Wallace, Journeyman dude ends up being a four-time Defensive Player of the Year and Hall of Famer, the first undrafted player to ever make the Hall of Fame. Rashid, a problem child. The basketball savant, though, ended up coming from Atlanta, middle of the season, being the piece that helps you win. So it could be something like that. No one's looking at Rashid Wallace as being the missing piece in Detroit. Joe Dumar saw something. So what GMs and presidents of basketball operations saw over this trade deadline that made them think that maybe, as we start in Detroit anyway, Boyan Bogdanovich and Alec Burks, who were traded to the New York Knickerbockers for Quentin Grimes' picks and parts, that's key for them because it rounds out the Knicks' lineup. you got shooters, you got scorers, guys who can score on their own, especially in the light of the injuries to Jalen Brunson. And to Julius Randle, who will be out for a while. We'll talk about that later on in the podcast. Pretty good picks. Pretty good choices. Pretty good trades. Quentin Grimes wanted out anyway. And those picks could lend to something very, very good for Detroit down the line. As they have to build around Jalen Duren, Asar Thompson, and of course, Kate Cunningham. Or do they? They waived the great Killing Hayes. And that's a whole nother story. I don't get Reddit online, the NBA Reddit. I mean, these guys kill him. He's, they say he's the worst player in the league. I have to look at that later, but I'm not really sure. But who is not the worst player in the league is one, Shivano Buddy Healed. Yes, Shivano, I'm talking to you, sir. Who was traded from the Indiana Pacers to the Philadelphia 76ers, one of the teams in the league with the worst three-point shooting percentage. Got a shooter and healed for Marcus Morris picks and parts. You know that Indiana now has the toughest bench in the league. And I'm talking about tough as in, Marcus Morris Sr. and James Johnson, you're not rushing their locker room. You're not rushing their bench anytime soon. They will fold your clothes while you're still wearing them. Don't do it. Miles Bridges in Charlotte vetoed any trades with his bird rights and also signed that one-year $8 million deal so he can retain those bird rights and possibly get a big bag that he fumbled before, get that this summer. Somewhere, maybe in Charlotte. Maybe they'll say, "Well, can we build around Lamelo LaFrance, Ben Miller, and Miles Bridges?" I say yes. Staying in Charlotte, the Hornets, as we knew, were planning to clean house. Gordon Hayward sent promptly for picks and parts to the Oklahoma City Thunder, and immediately he was right on the IR. You are who you are, Gordon Hayward. When he's not injured, how rare is that? He's a good player. Also, after his buyout by the Hornets, Kyle Terrell Lowry will be going home to Philly, backing up Tyrese Maxey. That's a quality backup. And again, a guy who hopefully, if he's not injured, can help his, on his last legs to hold down the fort until Joel Hans Embiid comes back from his recent surgery. Royce O'Neill my man David Roddy. Royce O'Neill playing for the Nets and Roddy coming from Memphis as a trade asset to the Suns. For picks and parts. Does this show up their bench a little bit? It makes them a little bit tougher. Some playoff experience. A guy who has been known as the quality 3 and D guy. In both of his stops in Utah and also in Brooklyn. Royce O'Neill may be able to help out defensively. For what's lacking in Phoenix. The leader of the German national team. The World Cup champion national team from Germany. Dennis Schroeder and the great Thaddeus Young. Moving on from the Raptors to the Nets for picks and parts, including one Spencer Dinwiddie, who was released and waived, free to sign anywhere. He's on a world tour right now, apparently. It was alleged that he was looking to sign with the Lakers, but he ended up in Dallas behind their bench too. Never know. Found some love and found a lot of success down there in Dallas before he was let go. Anything could happen, but I think he's going to, from what I understand, he's going to end up in L.A. Also coming to Toronto, Canadian-born Scarborough Blue, Kelly O'Linick from the Utah Jazz, as well as Ochai Agbaji, University of Kansas. Grady Dick has a brotherhood. Of course, they're not going to fill it out like the Nova Boys in New York, but you know the Kansas Boys, I don't know how that works out one way or the other. They're in Toronto now, traded for the Ski Mask All-Star, Otto Porter Jr., picks and parts, so salute to you guys. In Toronto, you see... My man, Masai Jury and Masai You Must Trust, making moves along with Bobby Webster, the GM there. Daniel Gafford, formerly of the Washington Wizards, moved to the Dallas Mavericks for Rashawn Holmes, who was not playing. And that rotation wasn't playing in Sacramento either. I don't know what he does or doesn't do, but teams don't seem to like him as he's moved again. And speaking of being moved, P.J. Washington, also the Charlotte Hornets, was moved to the Mavericks for Grant Williams, who had apparently worn out his welcome in about eight months in Dallas, rubbing people the wrong way, as is alleged from sources, not Chris Broussard. So Grant Williams and Seth Curry gets to go home and play in front of his dad 36 years later after his dad debuted in Charlotte. So it's kind of a cool thing to see his son play for the team he started with. The Grant Williams thing? Hmm, kind of tough. So who won the trade deadline? I would say right now, looking at what I talked about, I'm sure, you know, not to dismiss or diminish any of the players who were traded in what I call picks and parts, but the Dallas Mavericks seem to upgrade their front line dramatically, Gafford being a quality backup and fill-in for Derek Lively, who's going to be their starting center for the foreseeable future. If you can stay off the injured list as a rookie, I mean 19, he's still growing into his adult body, but Gafford's a grown man and will do more than adequately in the middle playing defense for that team, being a lob threat, rim protector, and also P.J. Washington, who has the versatility of Grant Williams offensively and defensively, maybe not as intense, but you'll hear less of him in the locker room, 100%. Did the Lakers play themselves? Did they win and lose? They got Spencer Dinwiddie for nothing, if he signs there. It's alleged that he will, but they didn't have anything to, to make real moves with. There was nothing that was going to improve them dramatically. So they have to stay with their core that they re signed over this summer and make it happen. Plus, the success that Dinwiddie and D'Angelo Russell, the much-maligned D'Angelo Russell, had when they were in Brooklyn together. Maybe they can rekindle that heat, make that happen in La La Land. But who really played themselves at the trade deadline? The Chicago Bulls. They should have been sellers. They were not. DeMar Darnell DeRozan should have been on the move. You couldn't trade Zach Levine because of his foot out for the season. Does Vucci Man go? Alex Caruso, a very hot commodity in trade talks, maybe he goes as well. But for them to stand pat for the past three years is like being in this kind of weird purgatory. For them to stand pat at trade deadline for three straight seasons, puts them in a place where they're not good enough to be a playoff team and not that bad once Billy Donovan started to figure out The lineup that he has in there with injuries to Zach Levine and everything else are going with two bigs. Andre Drummond inserted in the starting lineup. They start to win some games. Kobe White, give him the keys to the car. Let him do what he does. But you don't want to be just good enough to keep a job and not enough to lose it, oatmeal man Billy Donovan. That front office, as I say on occasion, is guilty of organizational malfeasance. We're going to treat you nice, even if you write to me. Because you have my social media. You can tell me whether I was right or wrong about who won the trade deadline derby. Or even if you just want to say you love me. Talk nice to me. as I'm going to talk nice to you when I come back for more on the other side of this. On the Open Run with Will Strickland. You are now listening to the sounds of the Open Run with Will Strickland where the lecture is conducted from the mic to the speaker in conversation with you about the NCAA because it is therapeutic. 100% if you love basketball. And speaking of loving basketball, a National Labor Relations Board regional official ruled on Monday last week that Dartmouth basketball players are employees of the school clearing the way for an election. That would create the first labor union for NCAA athletes. I remember that Northwestern tried this some years ago it was knocked down but this could be something great because we always knew as division one athletes we were employees of the university they didn't want to pay that workers compensation. Word to Dr. Walter Byers in 1959 student athletes all 15 members of the Dartmouth men's basketball team signed a petition in September asking to join Local 560 of the Service Employees International Union. Unionizing would allow the players to negotiate not only over salary, but working conditions, including practice hours and travel. And here's the quote from the Regional Director Laura Sachs of the National Labor Relations Board. Because Dartmouth has the right to control the work performed by the Dartmouth men's basketball team, and the players perform that work in exchange for compensation, I find that this petition for basketball players are employees within the means of the National Labor Relations Act. In a statement, Dartmouth basketball player representatives Kate Haskins and Romeo Myrtle called the ruling a significant step forward for college athletes, adding, we're excited to see how this decision will impact college sports nationwide. They also announced plans to form the Ivy League Players Association for basketball players across the league. In a conference that doesn't issue scholarships, So these guys have to pay to go to school. They're going to get a union for themselves and for every other player who goes to schools where they do have scholarships. I find that interesting. Would love to know what you think. Hit me on my social media. I'm not that hard to find. And in light of all of this, there's a judge who has decided that the NCAA can keep their NIL rules as is for now. So the fight in court for these young people of all ilk to be recognized as workers under the NCAA regime and all the Power 5 schools and every other school outside the Power 5 is going to be something to see play out in real time. But one guy who's had some issues with the NCAA enforcement arm, as I spoke about last week with Scott, is the one, the only. Hall of Famer Rick Patino, a.k.a. Ricky Three Stacks, who proposed that each Power 5 conference have a $1.5 to $2 million salary cap for the players He didn't specify if that number would include name, image, and likeness payments or funding directly from the schools. He actually had a two-tiered conversation about this and what he liked to call solution two in a tweet later on, saying that the NCAA should be taken out of the equation in a new collegiate landscape, which should include contracts for players. Here's this quote, do away with the letters of intent, make athletes sign a two-year binding contract, no different than professional athletes, which they are, he tweeted. With that, the NIL collective puts together their NIL contracts based on the cap. Obviously, a lot has to go into this. I believe that the NCAA should be taken out of the equation and commissioners should be put into it as the NCAA loses more cases than defense lawyers on law and order. But um bump, he'll be here all week. Oh, of course there's no cap on his salary. Keep that in mind. Who definitely doesn't have a cap is one of the most powerful power five conferences in the country. The Big Ten and SEC, as I spoke on last week, got together to form an advisory committee to oversee what's going on and to work as consultants to the NCAA. They're definitely hedging their bets one way or the other to make sure they're in position to control the narrative, as many people believe those conferences do. Shout out to the Big 12 on the one and two. But the SEC is slicing the pie right now so their division can snack 100%, or should I say, million earned in 2022-2023 that will go to their 14 member schools. Basically, a $51.3 million slice to snack off of. Not a bad deal. A lot of teams are thinking about that. And the real power in our Power 5 this week stays in UConn. Last week's Power 5, does it look a whole lot like this week's? Let's find out. At number one, UConn. At number two, Purdue. At number three, UNC at number four. Tennessee and at number five, the University of Houston. This week, UConn still up top after defeating Butler with Donovan Klingon giving you 18, 14, and three on a 12 game losing strike and facing the now new number four on our power five this week, the Marquette Golden Eagles of Shaka Smart. Talk about them in a second. At number two, the Purdue Boilermakers. 8-game losing strike. They may run the table in the Big Ten going into the Big Ten tournament. It looks like they could, but again, much like the Clippers in the NBA, people don't worry about the Purdue Boilermakers with Zach Edey leading the charge to be a two-time National Player of the Year. They don't worry about them in the regular season. They like to see what they do in the postseason. At number three with big wins over then number four, University of Houston, and number 13, Baylor, the Kansas Jayhawks. Back in the mix again Hunter Dickinson doing his thing down there. I always want to say go blue all day, every day to him, but he's a traitor. At number four, Marquette, the Golden Eagles of Shaka Smart at number four this week on a seven game losing strike. They, of course, face UConn later on this week. Looking forward to that game. It's going to be a big, big game. And at number five, the University of Houston Cougars. The loss to Kansas wasn't that big to me, and I thought that they came back well from that because they bounced back with a big win over Oklahoma State. I didn't see them sliding that far out of the standings, plus the guys right behind them are falling out, including University of North Carolina, who lost to unranked Clemson after all that noise that Armando Bacote talked. Come on, man. Can't lose to Clemson right after that. And Tennessee, who had a win against LSU earlier in the week. National Player of the Year candidate Dalton Connect, giving you 27-7-6 and in that game. They'll go out and lose to Texas A&M badly. Our power five for this week at number one, UConn, at number two, Purdue, at number three, Kansas University, at at number four, Marquette, and at number five, the University of Houston Cougars, led by Kelvin Sampson. When a coach gets a late night call from a security guard at their gym because there's a player there who won't leave, is that a good thing? As University of Southern California head coach, Lindsey Gottlieb got a call from the security guard that said Juju Watkins after a horrid 8-for-27 shooting night and a loss to get prepared for Stanford. Find her eye. Was in the gym and like, I need to get these shots up. I need to shoot. I don't care what the security guard says. That's a good call from your best players out there after the game that they lost. Still shooting? Yeah. She gave you 51 the next time, the next time she came out on the floor against Stanford. So... It's time to go to the ladies and congratulate Gino Oriema, the head coach of the University of Connecticut Huskies, for win number 1,200. Third coach to ever do that. Of course, Coach K of Duke and Tara Vanderveer of Stanford are in front of him. He said it's a record he will never break because Tar is going to still coach. He's the only one that actually got all of his wins at one school, though. Coach K at Army, then at Duke. Vanderveer was at Idaho, Ohio State, and then Stanford. So 38 seasons, he also got his the fastest of all the coaches. So salute to Gino Oriema. I'm reluctant to say salute to him, but the numbers don't lie. Speaking of the numbers this week, for the Power Five, let's go over what we were looking like last week in the Women's Power Five. Of course, University of South Carolina at number one, Iowa at number two, North Carolina State at number three, the Ohio State at number four on a nine-game looting strike, and at number five, the Stanford Cardinal of Tara Vanderveer. This week, the changes were precipitous, 100%, except for up top at number one. No Cardozo, no problem with wins over Missouri and a beaming of UConn down there in Columbia, South Carolina. Despite the 20 points and 12 rebounds from Canadian Aliyah Edwards and 20 points from Paige Beckers, the 83-65 victory over UConn is just another impressive victory for Coach Dawn's Gamecocks, Ashland Watkins, and Tahina Papal, along with Raven Johnson, led the way. I could say look forward to the next games, but we kind of know what's going to happen until they face another ranked opponent on the road. See what they can do. See if they can employ some things that can slow down this very well-rounded team that basically has everything. At number two, The Ohio State University on an 11-game losing strike and could run the table up until the beginning of March, where they get to face Iowa again, who they beat earlier, 100-92. At number three, the Stanford Cardinal, with wins over Washington and Washington State, moving up, staying steady and stable, in the mix, going up from number five to number three. At number four, welcome to the party, Virginia Tech. Big win over North Carolina State. And BC this week, Elizabeth Kitley, 49 points and 28 rebounds this past week in two games. And Georgia Amor, their point guard from Australia, 38 points and 14 assists in two games. Virginia Tech, be on the lookout. They were in the Final Four last year. ACC is pretty tough. So is Virginia Tech. And at number five, North Carolina State, who they beat, had to give them those stats though because they came back this week despite the loss. They beat number fifteen Louisville and lost to a rising Virginia Tech team, as I spoke about last week. To leave them at number five, who fell out of the top five? Well, you guessed it, the Iowa Hawkeyes. After beating Penn State University in Hannah Stolke scoring forty eight points against them, one short of the Iowa school record. Caitlin Clark, on her quest to become the all time leading scorer in women's college basketball history, scored twenty seven in that game. But against Nebraska, where people had lined up for blocks just to see Caitlin Clark play. And Caitlin Clark gave them the show, 31, 8, and 10. But she was held scoreless in the fourth quarter. And they lost to, of all teams, Nebraska. They also lost a tie for first place, the Big Ten, with The Ohio State University. But you can never lose when you get the news, views, and truths that you choose on the NCAA, NBA, and beyond. Here on the Open Run with Will Strickland. Because it's not how we start. It's how we finish. And we finish strong. So come back for more on the other side. Well, you know the rest. It's now winning time on the Open Run with Will Strickland. want to thank you, the listener, for being a part of the Open Run experience. And now, with that being said, it is time for the news, views, and truths that you choose on the NBA and beyond. Shouts out to Charlotte Hornets President of Basketball Operations, Mitch Kubchak, who is moving from his position to an advisory one, executive advisory. That means he can't be blamed for the rest of the stuff that happens. But this new ownership group has some plans for sure. We'll see how they panned out. Because the last ownership group led by one St. Michael Jeffrey of Wilmington, well, you know the results. They're miserable. Speaking of a team that Mitch actually played for and won a championship with in the 70s, The Washington Bullets, then, are now the Washington Wizards. And the Arlington move that we discussed here on the open run, where Commonwealth of Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, my former teammate at Rice University, has struck a deal with Ted Leonsis to move monumental sports and entertainment properties from D.C. into Northern Virginia and to Arlington, but Virginia Senator L. Louise Lucas, a leading Democratic Virginia legislator, said that the proposed legislation to help pave the way to relocate there is dead as far as she's concerned. The chair on the Senate Finance and Appropriations Committee said first over the weekend on social media that the legislation underpinning the deal was not ready for primetime and would not receive a hearing in her committee. The decision, in effect, killed the Senate's version of the bill because of procedural deadline this week, although another bill is making progress in the House of Delegates, which is also controlled by the Democrats. Lucas said on Monday that Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin had made a series of mistakes in trying to advance the deal through a General Assembly, now in full Democratic control after November elections. So this is going to be a pissing contest. Want to send condolences to my man, Jimmy Butler III, who had a death in his family recently. He's out for personal reasons. Did not play in a big game this week between Boston and Miami Heat. They definitely could have used him. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But best to Jimmy and his family in this time of woe and sorrow. Salute to one Kyrie Andrew Irving, who quietly does a lot of things that people talk about after he does them, which is kind of a cool thing based on how Kyrie's been maligned. and He said himself in a press conference recently, he can't worry about and give oxygen to people and things that he can't control. And that's true. You can get juiced up off of what people say online and let the adrenaline of the moment fuel you. But the most criminal thing you can do in this life is lie to yourself and you have to be who you are, Kyrie's being who he is, donating some money to a Jackson, Mississippi gym that just announced they were having troubles. They painted a mural of him in the gym and posted the images with a thank you to Kyrie Irving, so shout out to him. And shout out to everyone, including Vanessa Bryant, Pau Gasol, the Lakers, and all the fans of one Kobe Bean Bryant, who came out for the unveiling of the 19-foot statue of Kobe, pointing number one after he scored 81 points against the Raptors back in 2006, and the fact that they did it on 2-8-24, of course, two being the number of the late Gigi Bryant, Gianna Bryant, and, of course, Kobe's two rumbers, the only player in league history to have two numbers retired for one franchise. So salute to him. Kobe was such a big proponent, as many a WNBA star will tell you, of women's basketball and promoting it and being a big part of leading the charge of the Sita Foundation, the Mamba Academy. Everything he was doing with women's basketball was so big to them and their lives were cut short, but the lives of many a future WNBA player will be affected by his love and compassion for women's basketball. As we look at the WNBA's recent free agency period, we noted that a player who could really shift the balance of a lot of teams right now, including her own, is one Elena Deladon, who has made the decision to step away from the game for whatever reason. I don't know if today's stated it was her physical health or her mental health, but we wish her well in whatever decision she makes with the next chapters in her life and in her career. Best of luck to you, Elena Deladon. And best of luck to Seattle Storm, who have now formed their own Big 3 with the signing of Neka Agumake the former MVP and All-WNBA performer, has signed on after leaving the Sparks with the Seattle Storm to partner with Joel Lloyd, leading scorer in the league last year, and the great Skylar Dickens-Smith, Skylar Dickens. When you look at the All-WNBA team from last year, seven of the ten women play for the top three teams in the league. The WNBA's arms race is definitely top-heavy, and maybe, just maybe, The Phoenix Mercury can step in that area as well as they made a move to bring in Kalea Copper, who is one of the top scorers in the league, from the Chicago Sky, the former WNBA champion. They're going to come in with Diana Taurasi and Brittany Griner to make another push at the championship in the Valley of the Sun. All-Star Weekend is coming up for the NBA, and... We're going to see some innovations. I think I talked about this a little bit with Scott last week, where there's going to be a glass LED court used on some of the events for the NBA All-Star Weekend in Indianapolis about a year or so ago when we were working with Adobe, my man Cass Taylor, who was there, to try and bring Full Court 21 to the West Coast, do a deal with the Golden State Warriors, and use this court that would take your vitals and see where you shot the best from and keep it on a scoreboard to show you your stats. They're probably going to do the same thing with this NBA thing. I don't know if it's Adobe or not, but salute to that. I'm looking forward to what they do with it and how it looks, how players are affected by it or not so much affected by it. Salute to Rayford Trey Young and also Scotty Barnes, who were name replacements for Joel Embiid and Julius Randle, who are both injured, will not be participating in the NBA All-Star Weekend as players. But a guy who I thought Adam Silver should have selected because he selected these two guys from losing squads. I thought winning was everything. The coaches generally picking that way. And I thought that Jared Allen from the Cavaliers had an opportunity to be an all star again this year. I thought his numbers spoke to it 16 points, 10 rebounds, expanding shooting range. I don't see how you couldn't have him there. Or maybe even someone like Chris Stapps Porzingis, who's playing very, very well for Boston, could be. Top team in the league, top team in the East, multiple All-Stars, shouldn't be a problem. But hey, again, I guess you want to spread the wealth, and I get it. Plus, you know, making a nod to the only non-U.S. team in the league doesn't hurt ratings. So Adam Silver knows what he's doing. I'm going to leave that man alone. Injuries to report this week. Malcolm Brockton will be out for the next two weeks with elbow tendonitis in his right arm. That's something, because, especially as a right-handed shooter. It's a problem. Also, a lot of elbow issues. O.G. Ananobi, after coming in and being a spark plug for the New York Knickerbockers, after the next three weeks, elbow surgery to his right arm to get that fixed. They can hold down the fort with those Nova boys? We shall see. In the case in Philadelphia of Joel Hansenbead being out for the next one to two months after his procedure, it's something to think about. Here's the best player in the league who could be MVP again, first team All-NBA, he can't get those awards now because he's not going to play the requisite number of games according to the new rules. 65 games that you have to play. 65 games that you have to play. So do they just shut him down for the rest of the season? Like, what's the point? Or are the Philly fans saying he's not going to get better? He's not going to take the time to get better in this offseason. He's going to play in the Olympics for Team USA. It's not going to happen. We should go for it now. A lot of questions to be answered in that front office in Philadelphia and on that bench in Philly as well. Games of the week this week, as I said earlier, the Boston-Miami game looked to be something to speak on because Jimmy Butler, the Miami Heat, and what they did to the Boston Celtics last year to make it to the NBA Finals. But Jimmy was not playing, and still, a big fight was put up by the Miami Heat, playing with different parts that weren't usually on the court. Jaime Hawkins getting his start there. The Miami Heat are always going to play their culture and their identity, and so did Boston. And Boston, if they had lost this game, the questions would still remain as great as they are with as much firepower as they have. Do they have enough valentine and testicular fortitude to take it over the top when it counts the most? But the game of the week for me, Golden State versus Phoenix. You know, the history between Kevin Durant and the Warriors, of course, Draymond and Nurkic, their issues. Fight number two almost happening. There's more talk than anything else. Nurk is upset, said that Draymond, I take back what I said about Draymond needing another chance, this guy hasn't learned anything, Draymond says he's never going to back down, he's always going to be who he is, could be a spicy playoff series for sure if that happens, but in a big win, of course, the chef cooked, big three at the end of the game, the game winner, all you could do is look at him and Marvel, it was .7 seconds left on the clock, the guy turns around and hits a shot, what can you do? He's nasty like that, what can you do? About to be 36 soon, one of the greatest to ever do it. As a matter of fact, Kevin Durant said he's the top point guard who ever played the game and top five all time. Agree? Disagree? Capping? No capping? Let us know. You know my social media, not that hard to find. But it's hard to count on the death lineup, the new death lineup. No Andre Iguodala, but with Kaminga, Wiggins, Draymond, Clay, and Wardell Stephen Curry II, again, you can't count them out until they're officially dead. And though my friends call me hands and not just because they can count on me, you can also count on the power 10 this week in the NBA at number one, the Boston Celtics. My issues with them are myriad, been stated at nauseum here. We shall see when they make it to the playoffs, what they do with it and what they have. And number two, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yes, I said the Cleveland Cavaliers, the hottest team in the league, no question. Winners of 17 of the last 18. And they're getting healthy right before the All-Star break? Worth mentioning what they're doing in the land, no doubt. At number three, the Clippers. At number four, the Denver Nuggets. At number five, the Minnesota Timberwolves. At number six, the OKC Thunder. At number seven, the New York Knickerbockers. At number eight, the Milwaukee Bucks. Trending downward since the arrival of Glenn and Tom Rivers, but getting a spark and one Patrick Beverly was one of the trades that I didn't mention earlier. He's infused himself right away in that locker room, helped get their second win, and their second win possibly, to move forward toward the playoffs after the All-Star break. At number nine, the Phoenix Suns. Still adjusting to their trades, but with all that firepower to lose to the Golden State Warriors, it still has me questioning a lot about them and their heart and their focus. We've roughed them up. They don't like that. And number 10, welcome to the party, Dallas Mavericks. I like the new trades. I like the new look. And of course, Luca and Kyrie still killing them dead in the Metroplex. Before we get out of here, I'm going to send happy 90th heavenly birthday to the Lord of the Rings. And the Celtics were wearing these dope, dope t-shirts. The woman during the game against the Miami Heat with the number six in the middle of it and 11 rings around that six. This boss shit. All this arguing about who's the GOAT, who's this and who's that. Today on his 90th birthday, we're just going to show some love to the Lord of the Rings, as I said before. The great William Felton Russell. So until next week, do remember, do what's popular with the population. Make sure you don't get beat off the dribble. And keep listening to The Open Run with Will Strickland. Rich kid, my mellow, my man, do what you do when you do it. Easy.